Hello, it's Thursday the 3rd of March. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, we're talking about the sanctions on the Russian economy. They're really beginning to have an effect, but they're hitting ordinary Russian families most of all. They've begun already an investigation into whether Vladimir Putin is committing war crimes in his invasion of Ukraine. I think we all know the answer to that, don't we? If you like me, you take your vitamins, you think you're doing the right thing. But are you taking your vitamins at the right time of day? Stay tuned to find out. But first, what is it like living in Moscow? I'm talking to an historian and author who's living in Moscow right now. The rubles collapse. Some banks have signs. They say they have no more currency as customers are withdrawing their saving. There's a black market in trading dollars. Imported goods are being sold at a pace as people attempt to buy stock before prices rise to reflect the decline of the ruble. So what's it like in Russia? Owen Matthews is an historian, author of award-winning books on Russia, and he joins you on the line right now from Moscow. Owen, you're in Russia. We know they have state-controlled media. Is that why support for the conflict so far is at around 68%? That's absolutely the right question. Why do Russians believe in a war which the rest of the world, including 141 countries that voted to condemn it in the UN, why do Russians believe it and why are they so passionate, passionately supportive of Putin? And um, obviously you're right, just, the media is controlled by the Kremlin. They're... Russia today is a tale of two Russias. They're the middle class in Moscow who are panicking. Anyone who has anything to lose, savings, for people who are used to foreign holidays, the sort of international Russians of Moscow are panicking. The vast majority of the people are not really panicking because they believe what they're told on the television. And the, the more profound question is, do they believe that propaganda because they're stupid or exceptionally gullible or just extremely uncritical? Well, that's certainly true of some of them. But actually what's more profoundly true and more profoundly important to understand why Putin is so powerful and so popular is that he actually has a population that wants to believe in this wonderful story they're being told. And in that sense, it's actually rather similar to the phenomenon of you know, Trumpism in America. You know, they, they believe in something which is you know, fantastical and provably untrue. And it's not as though they have no access to alternative points of view. It's very easy to access alternative points of view. I've got three apps on my phone that gives news wires from all over the world. And I'm in Moscow. But it's just that they don't want to know. They just prefer to believe the beautiful lie. Do you suspect, Owen, as the sanctions bite, the food shortages start, the money runs out in the banks, uh, people start losing their jobs? We've heard just, for instance, uh, it's a small thing, but it's it's em- emblematic. IKEA have announced they're closing down all 17 of their branches in Russia. When it starts going wrong for families, is that when Putin's support begins to erode? The question is, how much pain can Russians take? Yes. And history, even very recently, recent history tells us a hell of a lot. Um, I mean, for instance, if we just take the last time a people power revolution toppled a government in Russia, it was in 1991. But that was after you know four to five years of sort of crippling shortages and disappearances of all kinds of staples and you know sort of near starvation and the total collapse of the Soviet economy. So, I mean, obviously, modern Russians are different. They maybe have different uh, tolerances for that kind of uh, economic disruption. But they've been through this roller coaster so many times. I mean, there was an economic collapse of the ruble in 1998. There was another one in 2008. 
and there's another one in 2014 the rural lost lost half of its currency people are basically used to economic shocks and disasters it's, they've been through the drill a lot of times and frankly um the putin's actually been sort of rather fiendishly clever because in the aftermath of 2014 russia banned the import of all foodstuffs from the eu since 2014 russia has been entirely agriculturally self sufficient they import no food at all from the from europe so the prices of basic foodstuffs are completely insulated from the collapse of the ruble they import no food from europe so um there are much more fundamental problems which are going to screw the economy horribly you know so things like buying computer chips and you know but you know the payments for any kind of technology i mean those sort of things that are fundamentally important to the development of russia are not completely cut off but you know people are still going to be able to buy cheap meat cheap potatoes and you know for the vast majority of Russians that's all they really care about yeah it's interesting and what's about Owen the new law imposed by the Kremlin which requires all young men aged between 18 and 27 to register for the drafts now you'll get some i guess parents will be proud of their son or daughter perhaps if they die for their country others may be not so keen to be fighting in a war in a neighboring country a country which a lot of them have affection for there's a difference between having to register for the draft and being drafted so he's not calling up everyone from right. 18 to 27 he's forcing them to register and that is basically a message it's he has plenty of men on the front lines it's not that he's running out of men in fact it seems that he's actually engaged less than one third of the troops that he has available on the borders and those are people who are already on the payroll he's not running out of bodies to throw into the war, into, into into the meat grinder it's not about that it's about sending a message to young people and to their parents like we the state are in charge and we can call on your life and liberty and it's all about intimidation and it's another way of intimidating young men um from showing up for to protest because if they haven't registered for the draft then they get into more trouble than they would be for just going to the protest it's just like another mechanism of control is being added it's just another screw being tightened and moscow today is full of rumors that the duma the parliament and the upper house parliament are going to impose a whole raft of very draconian new restrictions up to and possibly including martial law i don't think it maybe it'll go quite as far as martial law but certainly russia is going to take a turn in even more drastically into totalitarianism i mean really you know, we're really going back to the future it's yeah. going back to pure soviet style and, repression and can i ask you and a, just just finally on this so what is it like for you and other people living in moscow uh, at a time of rising international tension is it is it becoming uncomfortable for you to be living there or not um uh, no um in fact uh, i'm the object of envy which is again a sort of thrown back to the soviet period is people you know are envious of people of of foreigners that you know you have a foreign passport you know you're more or less uh, still in fact immune you know if the police arrest you it's a giant pain for them to process you they have to call the consul you know your foreign passport is sort of like a sort of magic invis- invincibility cloak uh, which ordinary russians and particularly ordinary russian journalists who have been amazingly brave those journalists are still working and amazingly brave those russians are still sort of risk uh, arrest and and some summary imprisonment essentially without any kind of hearing by going to protest they're extremely vulnerable for foreigners not so much so we're still thank god a somewhat privileged caste um and uh, uh in fact there's a whole bubble 
of Moscow intelligentsia, sort of middle-class people, hipsterish people. Moscow is an amazingly cool, sophisticated, very European city uh, inhabited by, you know, cool hipsters, indistinguishable visually, you know, um, from, 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 from many other kind of young Europeans. That bubble is extremely horrified uh, by the war and very sympathetic towards the West. But it's a very small bubble. It's a tiny minority. Fascinating. Well, Owen, great to talk to you. Um, stay safe, won't you? And um, and we'll look forward to your next dispatch from Moscow. That's Owen Matthews. Thank you very much. Historian and author. Thanks for joining us. Investigators from the International Criminal Court in The Hague have begun an investigation to collect evidence of atrocities, war crimes in Ukraine committed by Vladimir Putin and his troops. At least 2,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed. Many more have been injured. Explosions are continuing throughout the day and night in major cities and towns across the country. Uh, Joining me now is Wayne Jordash QC. He's a leading humanitarian lawyer who works with the International Criminal Court and he's currently based in Ukraine. Wayne, if I can use your first name, um, it seems to me it should be one of the quickest investigations the International Criminal Court would need to conduct because it's pretty obvious to most people that war crimes are going on by the hour every day. Russia is certainly um, conducting a masterclass in how to commit war crimes. There's no doubt about that. And not just war crimes, I suggest also crimes against humanity. We have everything in this package from willful killing to attacking civilians uh, left, right and centre, attacking civilian objects such as museums and educational and health facilities. It's really deliberate and it's really intentional. Now, whether, whether it will be easy to investigate is another matter in the sense that it's an ongoing conflict. And so investigating war crimes in these circumstances is difficult. But in terms of the evidence, it is there and it just needs to be collected. And we know what he's doing, uh, Wayne, because we've seen this tactic of his before. So the conventional attack appeared to get bogged down. We know the convoy, which is heading for Kiev, the capital, is not making the progress he expected. So he's resorting to the old siege tactics of bombardment with uh, missiles and uh, every everything he can throw at towns and cities, which is exactly what he did in Grozny, in Chechnya, in 2009-2009. 2010, killing literally thousands of people in the process. This is the Kremlin playbook. Uh, they started off this uh, invasion under the illusion that they would be welcomed as liberators. I mean, anybody who has just a slight bit of information of Ukraine would have known that that was never going to happen. And quite quickly, they realized they had to resort to their old playbook. And that's what's happening. And unfortunately, I think it's going to get worse because the Ukrainian resistance and the Ukrainian army is not going to stop. The uh, what? How do you define a war crime, Wayne? Uh, I mean, I know they. I know we know that he's been using cluster bombs, which I under, which are illegal. Uh, uh, but how do would you define a war crime? Simply put, it's a serious breach of international law committed against civilians or prisoners of war during armed conflict. And it occurs when intentionally directing attacks at civilians or when the armies use excessive uh, force or unnecessary or cause unnecessary suffering in relation to the military advantage obtained. So what you have here is uh, deliberate attacks on civilian targets 
And you also have uh, attacks on military targets, which don't in any way take into account the need for precaution and the need to protect civilians. So it's a whole range of what, uh, ways in which war crimes can be committed. Do you think Vladimir Putin gives a hoot as to whether he's found guilty of war crimes or not? I think he's been, unfortunately, given a sense of impunity over the last decades. I think he feels that um, he can get away with anything. He feels as though uh, this is his moment to make history. And as such, he doesn't care what the cost is. What he cares about is subduing Ukraine, bringing it into Russia's orbit and becoming some kind of historical figure for his nation. Sadly, that doesn't bode well for civilians in or Ukraine as a whole. Your, Ukraine is a huge country, the size of France and Germany and all the rest of it, Wayne. Um, are you? Where are you? Are you in a in a relatively safe, secure part of Ukraine at the I, moment? I, is is as safe I'm as in, anywhere is? I, I'm in a relatively safe place. I'm I'm near the border. I left uh, Kiev three days ago mm. as uh, the, the war really began because the work I'm trying to do, I can do from here. So I moved to safety. And my wife is Ukrainian and she's a political activist. She used to be an MP. And so I wanted to ensure that she was safe uh, if and when Kiev falls. You work with the International Criminal Court. How important in your view is it, Wayne, that it's, it can get on with its investigation about uh, Putin, uh, not least because there were still, what, five countries that um, voted against that UN resolution the other day, albeit two of them were Russia and Belarus. Uh, how important is it that the it, that the court can do its work and come to a pre- pretty speedy conclusion? I think it's really important because, uh, well, number one, that is the international mechanism for trying these cases. Number two, there has to be some kind of accountability in the long term. And three, there has to be some, uh, even if it's only a mild deterrent, to try to persuade the the Kremlin to behave better before it destroys the whole of Ukraine. And what I would also say is this, that, um, you know, for those who don't think that Putin will ever end up in court, it's not, first of all, it's not just about Putin, it's also about his uh, enablers, which include those from Belarus, but also includes his political and military leadership. And international justice tends to have a long arm. So we may not get him yet, but it's really important to build uh, the cases now, preserve the evidence now, and make sure that when any of those people travel anywhere in the future outside of Russia, they can be arrested and put into a fair trial. That's very heartening to think of. And I just think about some of those people, Wayne, that took some years to catch them, but they were finally made to pay their price over what they were doing in Bosnia and um, some of the conflicts of the 1990s. Well, Mladic took, I think, uh, 15 years. He was the commander of the Bosnian Serbs responsible for the genocide in Srebrenica. It took 15 years to get him. Karadic, also the same. Mm. So international justice, although it's slow and it's cumbersome and it has a lot of problems... It does tend to get its uh, suspects in the end. That's what I hope will happen in this case. And like I say, you know, it, it is Putin. 
He's the man behind the, um, the throne. But there are hundreds of enablers and all of them should face trial. Well, so say all of us to that. That's Wayne George Ash QC, a leading humanitarian lawyer, and he's director of the Global Rights Compliance Foundation, and he's talking to us from Ukraine. Wayne, as we've said to other people, we're talking to Ukraine. Stay safe, please. Thank you very much, Andrew. The unprecedented package of economic sanctions are now beginning to have a real effect on the Russian economy. Denied access to the SWIFT global banking system, Russian transactions worth hundreds of billions of pounds have been blocked. Interest rates are now rising to tackle growing inflation, which is causing a cost-of-living crisis that's hitting ordinary Russians the hardest. Joining me now is Tatiana Olova, the lead emerging markets economist at British-based Oxford Economics. Tatiana, um, when I read that, that ordinary Russians are being hit the hardest, I felt rather sad because they didn't pick this fight. They're not the oligarchs who've done very, very well out of the corrupt Putin's uh, economic reform since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yes, that's right. I absolutely agree with you. President Putin didn't ask the ordinary Russians when he was making his decision. And uh, I, I think uh, when we look at this crisis, the impact on the ordinary Russians may be comparable to the impact of the crisis in 1998, when the Russian state defaulted on its local debt obligations. The ruble has already depreciated very sharply. Inflation, we think, will average about 15% this year. But this is not just all. Uh, Even though the Western uh, governments are saying that their sanctions are targeting oligarchs, uh, oligarchs actually happen to own businesses which employ millions of Russians. So it's hard to see how the sanctions against their business Uh, are not going to affect the people employed there. What impact will a financial crisis in Russia have potentially on um, other economies in the world? It's it's not a huge economy. It's a huge military power, of course. Uh, Will it have a big knock-on effect or not? Uh, Well, me me and my colleagues, we are modelling this impact and we can see some moderate impact on uh, G- the GDP of uh, of a eurozone, for example. Uh, of course, the countries which are going to suffer the most are Russia's closest neighbours, which also have uh, the closest economic ties with, with Russia. Uh, for example, some very uh, some small economies such as uh, Tajikistan and uh, Kyrgyzstan, which heavily re- rely on labour remittances uh, from Russia, are going to be hit. Significantly, uh, I'm I'm referring here to the experience of the previous crisis, but there are also um, things which we probably are still quite hard to predict. For example, whether uh, the Russian leadership uh, decides to retaliate uh, in response to the sanctions which have been already announced, for example, by curbing uh, exports of oil and gas. So I think in, in that case, the impact would be much more significant. The and of course that that, that that's the uh, conundrum here. Of course, the governments around the world have united: the European Union, America, G7, Britain, all the rest of it. But still, so many countries are dependent on Russian gas, Russian oil. That money is still going into Vladimir Putin's exchequer uh, from countries paying for their oil and gas, which presumably then bankrolls his war uh, operation against. Ukraine. Yes, I, I agree with that. But uh, also, you, you, you mentioned yourself that the sanctions are going to hit the ordinary Russians. So if the Russian budget stops receiving these oil and gas revenues, then there will be implications for ordinary Russians too, because after all, the budget is paying pensions, it's paying, it's paying to teachers and doctors. 
So it's not just the army which the Russian budget supports. Can I ask you just finally on this, Tatiana? The package of measures um, are draconian. Um, I'm not. I'm not just talking about the the, the measures against the, the individual oligarchs, but against the Russian economy. Are they more dramatic, more severe than you anticipated? And do you think if that's if that's the case, perhaps more dr- dramatic and draconian than Putin anticipated? Uh, well, the, the measures are certainly more draconian than I had anticipated. I mean, the banning Russian banks from SWIFT has been mooted for some time. So even though people considered it a, a, a dramatic option, but uh, still there, there was some degree of preparedness for this. But the banning Russian central bank from transacting with foreign banks and freezing its assets is a truly a nuclear option. And uh, I, I, I'm not quite sure that uh, this is what the leadership um, expected. Um, there have been some um, preparation, of course, the Russian central bank has been decreasing the share of U.S. dollars in its assets in the last few years. Uh, but uh, I think they perhaps uh, they didn't expect that uh, there would be difficulties in accessing FX reserves denominated in euros as well. So there have been no shift from euro denominated assets. So I think they were not uh, fully prepared to this. If I first just squeeze in one more question, we know um, China has established its own version of the SWIFT system. Is there a fear, um, I mean, perhaps that's more of a political question and a question for you economically, but um, could Russia technically join the Chinese SWIFT system? I think it could, or Russia has also developed its own uh, messaging system. So perhaps the two countries could merge them, or perhaps they would invite uh, companies from elsewhere in the world to join these systems if they want, for example, to continue buying Russian oil and gas. So I guess we are facing a lot of uh, different scenarios here, but I think what is clear that perhaps in the future there will be a shift away from SWIFT as uh, other countries which also have uh, geopolitical ambitions may may be actually kind of uh, thinking that it's not 100% guaranteed that in, in the future they will be able to use SWIFT and could, could also come under a shock. So uh, but in a way, they will, I think it will provoke some shifts in terms of systems that the banking sector globally uses. Really interesting. That's Tatiana Olova, the lead emerging markets economist at British-based Oxford Economics. Thanks for joining us. Time for our regular city update now with Ruth Sunderland, Group Business Editor at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. Well, Ruth, uh, you were only arguing the other day, uh, why are so many of these major Russian companies still uh, listed on the stock exchange? Well, they were obviously listening or somebody was listening because there is there is news. Well, there is news. So I was I was thinking maybe the Kremlin's got a line into our leader conference, or perhaps it's the London Stock Exchange who, who's got a listening device. I don't know, but um, we, we we did actually we've we've argued in the in the newspaper that um, it is very contradictory that the London Stock Exchange has allowed around thirty big companies with very strong links to Russia to continue to be listed and have their shares traded in the city, despite what's going on in Ukraine. Um, and we called for them to be kicked off the stock exchange altogether. That's, that's not quite happened. They've been suspended. Trading's been suspended in 27 of these companies. Um, these include Gazprom, which Good. is a, a gigantic yeah. oil and gas company, as the, as the name suggests. They, they were until recently um, quite thick as these with 
um, Royal Dutch Shell, um, big bank called Sparebank, um, which is one of Rush, Russia's largest, um, and a number of others. Um, EN Plus, uh, you might remember Oleg Deripaska, I think. Uh, Lord I do, Mandelson yeah, was yeah. On yacht, was yes, he? Um, yes, he was. Rosneft. And George Osborne George was on Osborne it too. George Osborne was on the yacht too. Um, Rosneft, which until recently um, BT had a 20% stake in Rosneft, that's the um, Russian oil and gas producer, the, one of the biggest. It's absolutely an arm of the, the Kremlin, so fuel from Rosneft is literally um, powering the Russian tanks. Um, that are that are rolling through Ukraine as we speak. So, you know, great news that they've been suspended. I'd actually like to see the London Stock Exchange go a bit further. Um, and, you know, suspension's not enough, I don't think. My view would definitely be that these companies shouldn't be listed or traded on the London Stock Exchange at all. It's allowing oligarchs who are close to Putin to raise money to pay themselves huge dividends and we are all you know our pension money and isa money whether we know it or not or whether we like it or not has been going into some of these companies and you know i'm not happy with that at all as a saver and small investor no no and i've already ruth done my small two two small things to support the effort i'm no longer buying vodka and i'm cancelling my holiday i was going to be going to st petersburg this summer well i'm not now that's for sure well, you know what? I mean, that is a big sacrifice because St. Petersburg is the most beautiful mm, place. Know. And, you know, it's a tragedy that, that Russia, which is a country that has such amazing art and literature and heritage and some fantastic people, that this is being done in by Putin, a madman in their name, when I believe many of them would not support it for a second, would they? I agree. Well, Ruth, uh, you know, it's been suspended. They've he he heeded your words. It'll just be a matter of days now before they heed your words again and they're booted off altogether. I certainly hope so. All right, that's Ruth Sunderland, who is our group business editor at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. Thanks for joining us. So are you taking your vitamins at the wrong time of day? British people spend around £442 million every year on vitamins and mineral supplements and that's almost half the population. But taking vitamins in the wrong way can actually undo their potential for good. Here to tell us how and when to take our supplements is Dr Lindsay Cass, who's Principal Lecturer in Exercise Physiology and Performance Nutrition at the University of Hertfordshire. She joins me now. Uh, Lindsay, I can call you Lindsay. I, I didn't know there was a good or a bad or an indifferent time to take them. Reveal all. OK, well, I think it's, it's not quite as simple as just saying a good or bad time to take them. And I think we have to look back to diet a little bit first, which is definitely the best mm. way to get our vitamins and minerals in. Yeah. We eat those foods as mixed meals and we don't think about, you know, whether we're having certain types of food with other things that will stop us getting our vitamins and minerals. And for thousands of years, we've survived right. like that and been, you know, healthy with the foods that we eat. So I think that there's a couple of things that obviously I'll go over now and explain to you that we know does affect the uptake. But in general, I think it would be good for people not to overstress about when they take supplements and to look at their overall diet um, to see that they're getting enough nutrients from that. For example, one of the ones that um, everyone always worries about is um, calcium and iron, for example. So iron, it has been shown that the uptake and the absorption of that can be harmed if it's had with a calcium-based food such as milk. So you would recommend someone that maybe has slightly low iron levels to have their either a food or their supplement that contains iron with a vitamin C 
based um, foods such as orange juice or you know any type of citrus fruits because if they take that with a glass of milk for example it will reduce the amount of absorption into the into the body through the gut i see yeah and and low iron of course that's a pretty common nutrition deficiency isn't it it is a common nutrition deficiency and um you know with people that are suffering from low iron or from actually clinically diagnosed anemia then that would be a tip that would really help them so whether it's that they're taking their supplement with uh, orange juice or whether it's that they take their you know red steak with an orange juice either way that would definitely help the absorption of it and so the flip side of that is the dairy products if you want to get your calcium from your dairy products you know um you'd be better off to not not mix them with iron-based foods i get you and what about uh, the general rule about taking pills with a milk-based drink does that um does that negatively impact the vitamins if you do take it with a milk-based drink think about milk-based drinks and having them with a multivitamin obviously some of those vitamins you will read will be you know up um, regulated or absorbed better when they're had with milk and some have said you shouldn't and so this gives us a bit of a you know complex situation when we talk about a multivitamin but I think the thing that people need to bear in mind is that it doesn't stop the complete absorption of those vitamins and minerals it may not give you the optimum but if you're taking it as a supplement on top of a your diet you will still be increasing the amount that you take in and I think again that's quite important for people to remember because we don't want to be living a lifestyle where we're obsessing about taking certain vitamins and minerals at certain times of the day and with you know certain foods throughout the day I don't think we can live like that so I think that apart from maybe the um, iron which is so easy to have it with a glass of orange juice rather than with a glass of milk I think if you're taking a multivitamin I wouldn't over worry when I take it and if I wanted to take it with a glass of milk that's fine it won't completely stop the absorption but there may be certain vitamins or minerals in it that aren't as absorbed as they would be but you'll still get absorption from them it doesn't block it completely so you see I just for me personally when I take my vitamin d my vitamin c what else do I take uh I can't remember what else I take but I just when I get up in the morning uh I brush my teeth I do do the routine and then I take I take my pills I take my vitamins all in one go Yes. So I think that's a, you know, and then you're in a routine and then you're taking it regularly. Yes. And I think that's quite a good way of looking at it. Now, if you had a clinically diagnosed problem and so you'd gone to your doctor and they'd said, you know, you're very low on iron. Here's your single supplement iron um, tablet to take. Then I think it would be a good idea to consider what you're taking it with because you've got a clinical condition and you're trying to really optimize it. But I think when people use it, what we call, you know, uh, belts and braces type of attitude where most people in the UK eat a good all-round diet we're very lucky we have access to good food here but then you know you, you should be able to get enough from your diet plus a multivitamin whenever you take it. What about um, fish oil um, Lindsay how uh, good or bad is that in our diet I mean it's not it's not like popping a vitamin pill but should we be eating more food with fish oil? Yeah so the government recommends that we do eat more fish oils um, we we don't have that much of them in the UK. People seem to be a little bit anti-oily fish. And the um, nutrient that we want from the fish oils are the omega-3s. That's what we tend to be low in in the UK. And if we take more of those in, there's some evidence that it helps brain function. It can help low mood. There's evidence it helps heart disease. So it's very important that people take uh, that in. And the fish oils are a funny one because they're not always so pleasant to take. Um, if anyone has taken them, sometimes you have 
fishy books for a couple of hours afterwards, which isn't always the most attractive feature of it. So, um, you know, you're better off to take those really with a meal. And they recommend that you take the fish oils with what we call like just fat, because obviously they're an oil and they need to be absorbed through a pathway that allows for fat absorption. So with fish oils, if you were to take those with a, a fatty sort of food, then that would be a positive thing. Right. And, um, and, and, and just finally, um, a lot of people say, as long as you're taking your vitamin C, Lindsay, that's the most important thing. Is that, is that, is that, a, is that an old wives' tale, if I'm allowed to use a phrase like that? I'm not sure if I am anymore, um, but you know what I mean. My personal opinion, and I, you know, I don't represent anybody, it's only my opinion, as I think it is a, a bit of an old wives' tale, again, if you're having a normal diet, because you need such a small amount of vitamin C, really. You'd get it in a glass of orange juice, you'd get it in a tangerine. You know, you can get it from so many um, sources that actually, you know, you, you should just be able to get it from that. But I understand, again, people read some of the research out there and they say take these you know, massive high doses, uh, a thousand units a day, um, and so they want to take it as a supplement. But the evidence that it actually stops you getting colds and things is quite weak, actually. As a nutritionist, obviously, I like to get people's diets to be really healthy. But interestingly, the government has now changed its tune slightly because at one time they were thinking of stopping people buying individual vitamins because they didn't, and I get this, they didn't like the idea of people saying, you know, I think I'm short on vitamin uh, I don't know, C or zinc or magnesium or whatever, and I'm going to just buy that because it can put them out of kilter. But now so many people are short of vitamin D in the UK that they actually advocate it as a supplement, which is an interesting change in the government guidelines. Very interesting. Well, that's good because I take my vitamin D every day. Yeah, well done. So I'm, well done, you. I'm not doing too badly. Well, that's really fascinating, actually. Um, thank you for that. Um, that's Dr. Lindsay Cash. She's Principal Lecturer in Exercise Physiology and Performance Nutrition at the University of Hertfordshire. Really interesting. Thanks for joining us. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app every weekday at 5pm. You can listen to me all over again. I am Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'm going to be back with you tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Thank you.